Good morning. Good to be here on this Lord's Day, and the Lord's given us a sunny day. So may our hearts be lifted up in praise to Him. If you would, take your bulletins and let's stand and read our text again for the message. It will be the same selected text that we used last Sunday. This will be the second in a series of messages entitled, The Symbolism of Baptism. And the title of the message today is, The Testimony of Baptism. Reading first from Romans chapter 6. Ready? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Colossians 2.12 Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Acts 22.16 And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In 1 Peter 3:21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Now, in the previous message, we gave a detailed survey of the use of symbolism as a means in which the invisible creator has used to communicate with his visible creature, man. We saw that God's use of symbols began before man's fall in the garden and continued throughout the scriptures. We saw that it encompassed four distinct realms. First, in nature itself, or what we call natural revelation. Second, in special revelation as found in the Old Testament scriptures. And third, in special revelation as found in the New Testament scriptures. And fourth, in Jesus Christ himself as the God-man who is said to be the image of of the invisible God, or the symbol of the invisible God. Colossians 2.15 We also define the symbol as something that points to a deeper reality, but is not the reality itself. And that's critical that we keep that maintained. In Luke 13.32, Jesus spoke of Herod in this manner. Go tell that fox. Here he makes use of symbolism. He did not mean that Herod was a real fox. 
but that he had the cunningness and slyness of a fox. Based upon this understanding, then some believe that baptism is a symbol of a deeper reality, while others, or namely regeneration, while others hold that baptism is the reality itself which saves, thus affirming what is known as baptismal regeneration. We'll deal with these distinctions in a future message. But today I wish to take the position that water baptism is a symbol or representation of a deeper reality, namely the regeneration or renewing of a sinful person into Christ and his righteousness. Consider with me today the new convert to Christ. And I'm going to ask you to help out and consider yourself this morning as if you were a new convert making application to come and join into this church body and come before the church and make a testimony or a confession of faith. What would you say? And I'll be asking you questions as we go throughout the message. The Bible describes Christian conversion as a miraculous thing, not a natural thing. It is such a personal, radical change that it cannot be described as something less than a new birth, a second or new creation, and a resurrection from the dead. When a human being is made conscious of such a change in his own experience, he or she now wishes to make a public confession of their faith. And God also desires this to take place. Now, since God has made such a wide use of symbolism in various manners, as we saw last time, we could only naturally expect that he would provide a special, visible symbol to enable the new convert to publicly express his or her newfound faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. You follow me? If God's got symbols everywhere, there ought to be a symbol for a confession of faith in Christ in the gospel. Now let's suppose that someone is standing before us today as a, candidate, as a candidate for membership in the church body. He's passed through the Spirit's work in regeneration and now wishes to make a public confession of his faith. What will that confession consist of? What are the leading truths or elements connected with this miraculous event of regeneration that he or she wishes to express or describe. From time to time in this discourse before us, I'll be asking you questions which I want you to answer in your minds. The first truth which the new convert would desire to confess 
involves a confession of sinfulness. There are two figures or types under which the Bible sets forth the conception of sin. The first is that of death. Now, the death of a human body is a painful thing to look upon. It repulses our senses as we view its unnatural figurement, its insensibility to sight, to sound, to touch, to expressions of love, its utter helplessness, its corruption and decay. It was said of Lazarus after he had been dead four days that by this time he stinks or stinketh. Now this is how the Bible portrays a sinner. He is said to be dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Sin and death are wedded together in Scripture. Such a sinner is entombed in sin. How then shall our candidate symbolize to us his or her confession that they have been spiritually dead? You should be answering that in your mind at this time. Now the other figure used by Scripture to describe sin is that of uncleanness. Sin is viewed as a state of impurity, pollution, defilement, and filthiness. This was stressed in the Mosaic rituals, guarding against all manner of ceremonial defilement. In particular, were all dead bodies and those diseases which might be described as a living death, such as leprosy, were marked out as being unclean. They were regarded as special types of the filth of sin. The leper was required to cry out, unclean, unclean. When anyone approached, so contaminating was sin viewed to be that whatever came in the slightest contact with a dead body was considered defiled and needed to undergo the ritual of cleansing, whether it was a person, an animal, a garment, or a piece of furniture. Under the New Covenant, sin is set forth as an inward defilement or filthiness of soul. Jesus states in Matthew 15, verses 17 through 20, Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. 
For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The state or condition of sin is not only that of death, but of uncleanness as well. Impurity of soul is a fundamental truth contained in the gospel scheme. So what symbol, then, shall the new convert select to confess his state of spiritual death and polluted uncleanness? If you are that convert and you have invented some symbol to represent your spiritual death, what would you then choose to describe your total spiritual defilement? The second grand truth of which this new convert would wish to express in his public confession of faith is his entrance or beginning of a new way of living. His entrance into a new way of living. Old things have passed away, and now all things are becoming new. Now, there are many figures in the Bible of which the Bible uses to set forth the conception of the new state in which the regenerated sinner has entered. The most frequent is that of the term life. As death is the representative type of sin, so life is the representative type of righteousness. We read, He who hears my word and believes in him that sent me has what? Everlasting life and shall not come into judgment or condemnation, but has passed from death unto life. John 5:24. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6:23. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, Romans 8, 6. So this newborn convert believes he has entered into this life. He has passed from death unto life. Once dead in sin, he now has been raised unto God. Conversion is a resurrection. In confessing then his faith, how then should he symbolize his resurrection? If he has selected some symbol to describe his spiritual death, what symbol should he select to describe his spiritual resurrection? What say you? There's a second figure in which this resurrection unto a new way of living is pictured. It is a resurrection into 
a life of righteousness and purity. In his unregenerate state, he had not merely been dead, but also defiled. So now, in his regenerate state, he has not only been quickened or made alive, but also cleansed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to, I can't hear you, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 So the new convert has passed under the quickening power of the gospel and is undergoing its purifying process of sanctification which shall continue on until he shall be presented spotless before Christ in glory. If a public profession of faith involves his expressing his sense of total defilement, it is equally important that he express his desire for a total purification of life and his belief that that is possible. How then shall he express this desire? The first way is to symbolize his death to sin. The second way is to symbolize his resurrection to life. The third way is to symbolize his total defilement. And the fourth way is to symbolize his desire for total purification with sin. He wants to make a break with sin. Now, if you're that convert, what symbol or symbols should you select? Hmm? I hope you're thinking. It's a tragedy today that when people apply to join the church, they don't have to know very much. They, they can't even hardly express themselves. That wasn't the case in the Bible. You had to know how to confess that Jesus was Lord and what that meant. We as Baptists hold to believers' salvation. That is, a, a, belie a believer in Christ. A believer is one who must be able to confess what they believe. And yet we ask so little of what people confess and what they believe. We move now to the third great truth which this new convert to Jesus would naturally wish to express. And that is, follow me, the source and the power by which he has been made alive and cleansed. Now this, of course, cannot be by any act or choice of his own. Death cannot resuscitate itself. Right? And uncleanness cannot cleanse itself any more than the leopard can change its spots. In Jeremiah 13.23, God asks, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spot? Or rather, can the Ethiopian change his skin and the leopard's spots? 
Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. End of quote. If the energy, the power, the ability to bring about regeneration does not reside in the sinner, then where does it reside? By what energy source is the sinner who is dead in sin and stained in filth made alive and cleansed? Now, every true Christian understands that the death of the Son of God on the cross is the source of his people's life. Okay? Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. John 6.51 Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. 1 Peter 2.24 Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Thus the source of the believer's new life is traced to Christ and his death. Now the life of Christ then is then implanted to the dead sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit, the source Christ. The instrumental means the Holy Spirit, so that the believer is joined to Christ in what we call a vital, living, organic union, wherein he or she becomes an actual participant in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Christ's people are one in and with Him. He is the vine, they are the branches. John 15, 5. He is the head, they are the Body, Ephesians 5.23. He is the bridegroom, they are the church, or the bride. Revelation 21.9. He is the second Adam, and they are his spiritual offspring. Romans 5.14-19, 1 Corinthians 15.22, and Hebrews 2.10-13. Now, this is a profound meaning of that distinguishing formula found throughout the epistles, which declares the believer to be, listen, 
in Christ. Do you know what that means? Could you confess it and explain it to someone else? This is what a new convert ought to be able to do. Not someone who has been in the Lord ten years or twenty years, but someone who has just been made alive in Christ. What does it mean to be made in Christ or be in Christ? To be in Christ involves the doctrine that the believer has actually fulfilled the law of God in the person of Christ and his obedience to that law. The law said, the soul that sins shall surely die. Ezekiel 18.4 The believer has sinned, and yet he shall live. And in so doing, not one jot or tittle of God's law has failed or been left unfulfilled. In virtue of his being in Christ, the believer died when Christ died. His sin was punished and the law vindicated. And so in Christ, the believer fulfills all righteousness. Now, the Scriptures declare such in these terms. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.14, We judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. The believer is said to have been crucified with who? With Christ. Galatians 2.20, and to have been buried with Christ, Colossians 2.12. So by being in Christ, listen, the believer is thereby empowered to live a resurrected life of obedience and purity unto God. You see, our life does not originate in old Adam. It originates in the new Adam flowing into us. We are in Him. Paul describes this power as being, quote, the love of God has been poured out or shed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which was given to us. Isn't that nice? Isn't that great? Here's our empowerment. And every believer has this. Romans 5, 5. As the believer grows in the understanding of God's love for him, he in turn is overwhelmed and constrained by gratitude to live for God. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. If that's got a hold of you, then you're going to live and serve him. You're going to live and serve him. That's the life that is reigning in us now. Now, perhaps an illustration can be given to help us better understand the nature 
of an organic or vital union with Christ. After all, Brother Asa, how can one die with Christ when he was not even alive at the time of his death? Hmm? Do you want to come up here and explain that as a new convert for us? Huh? Uh, we repeat, if we died with Christ, how could we have died with Christ when, he, when we were not even alive when he died? This requires that we understand the meaning of the term organic. Organic means vital or living, and it pertains to the living parts of an organ that are connected to the whole body. The human body has many living organs which make up the body as an entire organism. Let's now illustrate the doctrine of organic or vital union with Christ, which incidentally takes place at the point of regeneration. Let's suppose, listen carefully, that a certain forest contains two special trees. I am a limb on one of those trees. The tree is about 200 years old, but I as a limb am only 20 years old. Boy, I wish that was true again. <laughs> One day, a man enters the forest with a chainsaw, and after examining my tree, he places a sign at the base of the tree which reads, Marked out for destruction. I inquire as to why the tree of which I am a member and related to is about to be cut down. I'm informed by the man that something happened many years ago in the history of that tree which led to the harmful effect upon the forest as a whole. I began to object and say, it's not fair that I should suffer for something the tree did, but I as a limb did not so do. I wasn't there. The man with the saw proceeded to explain that since I was a living member of that tree, I inherited the nature of that tree with all of its historical past. The tree was not only defiled and poisonous, but as a limb, I was defiled and poisonous because I was in the tree and organically connected to the life and history of that tree. The man with the saw moved to another part of the forest and started to mark out another tree. 
Only he finds the words, George loves Martha, carved in the trunk of that tree. George Washington had left his mark on the tree. The man put up a sign at the base of the tree reading, Preserved for the life of future generations. Then, to my amazement, the man came over and cut me off the tree by birth and grafted me into the tree which had its life preserved. Are you thinking? Immediately I began to sense the life of the new tree flowing within me. And I not only began to take on the features of the new tree, but I learned that I would inherit the history and the blessings associated with all of that tree and its past before I was actually formed as a limb. I became vitally united with the history and the life of that tree when I was grafted in as a limb. So I now possess the nature and the destiny of the new tree. I was then informed that the tree was the tree of life and would exist forever and that I would live and live and live and continually receive all of the benefits associated with the life and history of that tree. I am organically related to the tree. Now, the first tree represents what it means to be in Adam, with death and destruction marked out for its destiny. The second tree represents what it means to be in Christ, the second Adam, who is marked out to be the tree of life with an eternal destiny of life, joy, peace, in the new paradise, the new forest, which God has prepared for those sinful limbs who have been cut off and grafted into Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. So then do you see how the Bible can say, when Christ died, we died. Hmm? When his life of regeneration came into us, we live. And we inherit everything about Jesus Christ. All right, ready? What then shall be the symbol or the symbols of the source and power through which our new convert has been resuscitated from death and cleansed from sin? What would you choose to symbolize all this? Thus far, the convert has needed symbols to symbolize his spiritual death. Secondly, his spiritual resurrection. 
Thirdly, his total defilement. Fourthly, his total cleansing. Fifthly, the source and power by which he has been resuscitated and cleansed. Let's move now to the fourth great truth which our newborn convert would want to confess before men, and that is his belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. It's a sad and grievous thing to see the Son of Man lying cold and silent in his grave or his tomb. But he must not only die, he must be buried in a tomb as proof that the powers of sin and hell had conquered their victim. For three days and nights, the sting of death and the victory of the grave are permitted to display their powers over God's creature, man, the Son of Man. Shall death and the grave prove to be a conqueror of God's Redeemer, Redeemer and prove him to be someone less than he claimed to be? If Christ does not rise, then his decaying corpse will demonstrate that he was not who he claimed to be, but instead was either an enthusiastic lunatic or a lying, arrogant imposter. All of this is resting on whether he stays in that grave or not. If Christ does not rise, then all that he said was false. All that he had done and endured was in vain. All that his people had hoped for was now hopeless. If Christ does not rise, the one thing that could have given the atonement its worth as an accomplished fact, would be lacking. And on the stone which sealed Joseph's tomb, these words might be inscribed. No mercy here. No satisfied law. No regenerating grace. No Savior. No heaven. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 18 summarize the matter. If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is empty or vain. And your faith is also empty or vain. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Hmm? But Christ is risen. Amen? And the scene changes. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus, my Savior, waiting for the coming day, Jesus, my Lord. 
vainly. They watch His bed. Jesus, my Savior. Vainly they seal the dead. Jesus, my Lord. But up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph o'er His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose, He arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. The atonement has been accepted by the Father, and the fountain of grace has been opened for grace to flow, to pardon and cleanse even the worst of sinners. So just as the Scriptures represent the believer as having participated in Christ's death, so it represents him as having participated in Christ's resurrection. It asserts that believers are risen, and not only like Christ, but also with Christ. They are said to be not only heirs of God, but what? Joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live and reign with Him. Hear those words. God, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, and raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. In virtue of the believer's organic union with Christ, Christ's death has become the believer's death, and Christ's resurrection the believer's resurrection. My life is in heaven above, flowing to me here on earth. Now, in order to symbolize Christ's resurrection, it is also essential that his burial be symbolized. Some symbol must exist to portray his grave or his tomb. What symbol would that be if you were that new convert and you wanted to select a symbol? What would you select? To represent Christ's grave or his tomb. Now, I've now given you four basic elements found in making a public profession of faith. I've asked you to pretend that you are the new convert who is desiring to give your confession or testimony as to show how you became a Christian. I've also asked you to select a symbol which would act as a shadow to represent the basic ingredients found in the gospel. So here's the task that I've set before you. The first problem you have is to symbolize your own spiritual death. The second is to symbolize your own spiritual resurrection. The third is to symbolize your total defilement or uncleanness. The fourth is to symbolize your total cleansing or purification. The fifth is to symbolize Christ's atoning death by which you have been made alive and cleansed. And the sixth is to symbolize the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Am I here? I have given you a huge task. Are you up to it? In that, you must come up with six distinct symbols to represent these gospel truths. How many have you come up with already? These elements comprise the basic ingredients found in the gospel as expressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 4 where he says, quote, "I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you which also you receive and wherein you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was, what? Buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. My hearers, that's the fundamental declaration of the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Bible. And it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Gospel which saves Not a preacher, not a vow, not an ordinance. It is the gospel which saves. It is Christ who is the source and the power of life. The reality, if you please. Now we need some way of expressing this in symbolic form to represent this reality. Now hold on. I'm going to increase your task from a huge one to a colossal one. Ready? I want you to express in one single symbol or emblem all of these truths combined. Hmm? What's your symbol going to be? I'll help you out. I'll now relieve you of your impossible task. The New Testament Scriptures give us one and only symbol which can do this. Would you symbolize your death in sin and your resurrection unto holiness of life? Quote, then do you not know, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 6, 4. And the burial by baptism can only be displayed by a believer being immersed in a watery grave. How would you symbolize all of these ingredients of the gospel in any other way? Would you desire to symbolize your complete defilement and your desire for complete cleansing? Then Acts 22.16 says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. You see that? That text makes sense now? Not that the water is going to wash it away, but the symbol which it's representing. Arise and be baptized and be cleansed through the gospel, calling on the name of the Lord. Again, the word baptize in the Greek, and all are agreed upon this, means to immerse, to dip, or to plunge under. Even John Calvin, who did not hold that it was necessary to immerse a believer in his commentaries, points this out. But that's the meaning of the word. And only the burial of a complete body in water can symbolize the complete cleansing. Would you symbolize your belief in the buried and risen Savior and your participation in His death and resurrection? Then Colossians 2.12 exhorts you to, quote, Be buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the workings of God who raised Him from the dead. Again, Only the descending of a believer into a liquid tomb and emerging out of it can show forth the entire body of Christ being buried and raised out of death's tomb. Oh, what a glorious symbol is the Christian gospel. If you're a convert to the Christian faith, you may tell me with your mouth and words of your sinfulness and your hope in Christ for salvation. You may display your tears for your past life and your resolve for your future life. You may tell me of all that Jesus has done for you and all that you intend to do for Him. But when I see you silently saying not a word, but descending into the waters of baptism, I there see a more eloquent story in the language 
in a language which all peoples of the earth can understand. A language which does not pass with the changing of time. A language which no pulpit orator can rival in clarity. I'm humbled to see that God has done it again. Another lost sheep has been brought into the fold by the shepherd of the flock. Here is our new convert. He's ready to be baptized. Not that anything in the ordinance imparts regeneration of life, for baptism is a symbol, not a power or a reality. It is a shadow, not a substance. I close with this statement. Truly no one but an infinite God in wisdom could have devised a ritual so simple and yet so dense with meaning and glory. To Him be all honor and glory and praise forever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for the Gospel of Your Son, who is our hope that in Him and His life we live. In His perfect sinlessness, He lived in our stead. In the debt that we owed unto Him, He paid on the cross. So that now, Your holy law has been totally vindicated, and we stand perfected in Him. We want to confess this before men, that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I thank you for the day of my baptism and the joy that it gave me to be able to stand before that little group of people in that rural church and to be able to proclaim that the old Jim Gables is over and a new Jim Gables is coming forth. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, for Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. In Christ's name, amen.